Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 1. Last week, I wrapped up the history surrounding the book of Genesis, and with that, I finished Chapter 2 of the podcast. If you missed that episode, well, any of those episodes, you should go back and give them a listen. This week, I'm beginning the history of the people, places, and concepts found in the book of Exodus. And I'm approaching this chapter of the podcast a little differently. I've decided to start with a summary of the narrative found in the book. Then I'll cover the history of the writing of the book itself. Before I get to the particulars, the people, places, and concepts in the book. And with that table setting out of the way, I'll jump into the narrative. So let's get started. A little forewarning. This episode concerns essentially a summary of the text of the book of Exodus, from chapter 1 to chapter 5. And this part of the Bible is essentially a storytelling narrative. So in many cases, I will be quoting straight from the text. And with that, fasten your seatbelts, raise your tray tables, and get ready to hear the phrase, end quote, quite a bit. Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off. Well, almost. Much time has passed, 400 years in some estimates. Of course, at the end of Genesis, in the last few chapters, Jacob turned Israel and his family moved to Egypt and then were fruitful and multiplied. And now, in the beginning of Exodus, a new Pharaoh is ruling and begins to grow weary of these non-Egyptians in their increasing numbers, and with that, their growing power. So, he does what dictators do. He dictates and enslaves, all in the hopes of controlling the population of non-Egyptians. To be exact, according to the text, he says, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and, in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set the taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Python and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. End quote. And the Pharaoh wasn't quite done yet. He ordered the Hebrew midwives to murder all male newborns, and they secretly disobeyed him. So he then ordered the Egyptians to throw male newborns into the Nile. In both cases, he allowed female babies to live, which is very telling. Modern sociologists propose that the survival of a population is dependent on the number of women, not the number of men. Pharaoh apparently didn't know this. And the next part of the story is fairly well known. I could retell it, but the text is concise enough that there's no need to paraphrase. From the New Revised Standard Version of Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. 
When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. End quote. And that is really all we know about his youth, from the house of Levi to the house of Pharaoh. The next part of the narrative is a story from when he was a young adult, once again from the text. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. Okay, pause the quote for a second while I point something out before it slips by. Moses knew he was Hebrew and not Egyptian. This will be important many decades later, so keep it in the back of your mind. Picking up in the text again, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian It hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Rauel, he said, How is it that you have come back so soon today? They said, An Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him to break bread. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Sipporah in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. At the end of chapter 2, Pharaoh dies, and the Israelites cry out to God due to the anguish of their slavery. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites and took notice of them, which gets me to the end of chapter 2. In one note, the chapter mentions the Midians, whom I covered several weeks ago, well, really over two months ago, 
in chapter 2, episode 67. In the beginning of chapter 3, God speaks to Moses via a burning bush located at Mount Horeb. This is the first mention of Mount Horeb in the Bible. And a quick note to self, after summarizing the entire book, I'll cover Mount Horeb and how some theorize that it's one and the same as Mount Sinai. Back to the text. When God speaks, it's definitely worthy of a quote. He said to Moses, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. A short time later in the text, God reveals his name to Moses, and then he tells Moses how the whole affair with the Egyptians will go down, saying, They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us now go on three days' journey into the wilderness, so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. I know, however, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will perform in it. After that, he will let you go. I will bring this people into such favor with the Egyptians that, when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman shall ask her neighbor and any living woman living in the neighbor's house for jewelry of silver and of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. End quote. And that's the end of chapter 3. The first half or so of chapter 4 is essentially Moses in some ways arguing or maybe trying to persuade God that he's not the right man for the job. In order to convince Moses and also to demonstrate to both the Hebrews and the Egyptians that he is on a mission from God, God gives Moses several ways to impress the people. First, God turns Moses' staff into a snake and back again. And that story is relatively well known. The next, not so much. The Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was leprous, as white as snow. Then God said, Put your hand back into your cloak. So he put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his body. If they will not believe you or heed the first sign, they may believe the second sign. End quote. And this is the first mention of leprosy in the Bible and gives me something to cover in the near future. And since so many good things come in threes, 
God gives Moses a final way to show he's there on a mission. As a third sign, God tells Moses to take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And then the water taken from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But at this moment in the text, and unlike the staff turning into a snake and his hand dying and being brought back, there is no demonstration. And despite this, Moses still wasn't convinced he was the right person and tried to talk God out of it. I would hope that if God told me to do something, I wouldn't hesitate. But I think we all know better than that. We all need convincing sometimes. And to me, this is reminiscent of Abraham bargaining with God about finding a righteous man in Sodom, all in order to save his nephew Lot. The conversation between Moses and God went like this. Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be your mouth, and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What of your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. Taking your hand this staff, with which you shall perform the signs. And this is the point in the text where if you're paying attention, you say, Whoa, wait, what? A brother? A Hebrew brother? Where did he come from? I thought all the males were killed and only Moses survived. Well, let's take a minute and explore the topic. First, this is Aaron's first mention in the Bible. But we will later learn that Aaron was Moses' older brother by three years. So it's likely that he was born prior to Pharaoh's first decree concerning the murder of Hebrew babies. Or maybe there was a non-compliant midwife. Either way, Aaron benefited, and so did Moses. I'll cover Aaron in more depth later. Back to Moses in chapter 4. At this point, Moses was done arguing with God and approached his father-in-law Jethro about returning to Egypt to check in on his people. And Jethro allowed him to go. And, to me, this seems like a really awkward moment that speaks to the culture of the time and place. After all, Moses was an adult when he went to live with the Midians, and then he had been there 40 years. So, he was at least 60 years old or so, and he's asking his father-in-law if he can leave. But that's my Western, modern mindset looking at the situation. Jethro was the head of the household, and who knows, Moses may have been indebted to him somehow. In the end, Jethro needed less convincing that Moses needed to go than the convincing that Moses needed from God. Let that one sink in for a minute. 
In the next paragraph, God addresses Moses again, saying, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let his people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, Let my son go, that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. End quote. And the implications are immense, but mostly theological. Probably worthwhile of some research. Just not here. Moving along to the next paragraph, which in my mind is one of the most confounding in the entire Bible. The New Revised Standard Version reads, On the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. End quote. Okay, to be clear, God tried to kill Moses, but his attempts were thwarted by Moses' wife. And the odds are probably better than average that you were never taught that in church. But there it is, in Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 to 26. God tried to kill Moses when Moses was on his way to perform a mission for God. I have no explanation that isn't theological, but I will offer my opinion for free. And just remember, you get what you pay for. Anyway, it's such a strange story that if the Bible were concocted years, decades, centuries after the fact, as some allege, then it's a really safe assumption that this little passage would not have been included since it doesn't support the overall story. To be a little more succinct, the fact that it's in there yields a great deal of credence to it actually having have happened. At least that's my opinion. As for the theological implications, you'll need to look elsewhere. And with that short but very interesting story, the narrative at the end of chapter 4 switches to Moses' older brother Aaron it is here that God speaks to Aaron, telling him to go to the wilderness and meet Moses. And he did, not needing any convincing, at least any that was recorded. When they met, Moses told Aaron of his mission from God, and they both went to the elders of Israel. In this meeting, Aaron relayed to the elders what God had asked him to do, and as proof, Moses performs the signs that God had given him. And of course, with these signs, the people of Israel believed Moses and worshipped God, knowing that he had heard their cries and seen their misery. And with that, the chapter ends. Which brings me to chapter 5. In the very beginning of the chapter, Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh, relaying these words from God. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh was unimpressed, just as God had predicted. Who is the Lord, that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then Moses and Aaron tried a different tact. They said, The God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. 
Let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he will fall upon us with pestilence or sword. Now, if you're paying attention, that's not exactly what God had asked them to do. And Pharaoh remained steadfast, saying, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Pharaoh continued, Now they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the heavier work be laid on them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. End quote. Just in case you didn't notice, there was a fight brewing. And the slave drivers, in some versions called taskmasters, cracked down on the Hebrew slaves, doing as Pharaoh had ordered and refusing straw in the making of bricks. And the reasons for this important ingredient will be covered later. Back in the text, we learn how the Israelites were beaten and were asked, Why did you not finish the required quantity of bricks yesterday and today as you did before? Then it gets interesting. Actually, it's been interesting, but this is something a little bit unexpected. The Israelite leaders complained to Pharaoh concerning the unfair treatment of the Hebrews, but Pharaoh was unrelenting in his demands concerning the production of the bricks. As they departed, the Israelite leaders ran into Moses and Aaron, to whom they said, The Lord look upon you and judge. You have brought us into bad odor with Pharaoh and his officials, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. So much for loyalty. Obviously, things weren't going as planned, and Moses prayed, O Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated this people, and you have done nothing at all to deliver your people. How did God respond? Well, you'll have to wait until next week for the answer to that question. And for a quick review, in these five chapters, there were a few things to be covered later, specifically Mount Horeb, leprosy, the making of bricks, and of course, Aaron. Not to forget, I am getting to the Egyptians. Just be patient. Join me next week when I'll continue the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 6 and getting as far as time will allow. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. Finally, you can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss any. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.